Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Imperial TMT podcast, where we invite innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists from all backgrounds to have mindful conversations about business and technology. I'm your host, Jojo. In this episode, we have the Senior Director of Programs at Watson Institute, Abney J.D. Freeman, joined the show. Abney J.D. Freeman is a creative technologist who enjoys developing innovations using design thinking processes, Kaizen optimization, and system thinking. She's also an arts and culture commissioner at the city of Boulder. Before joining Watson Institute, she spent three years at Google as an ad product solutions consultant. Thank you for joining the show. I'm super happy to have you here. So before we kick off, could you introduce yourself and maybe share one of your fun facts with us? Absolutely. And I feel like you introduced me too well. I don't know what else to say now. Well, you know, I graduated from Emory University's Goyswata Business School. And then I, as you mentioned, went straight to Google. And along the way, I've worked in Google's Mountain View and Boulder offices. I will admit they're equally as good. So if you have the chance to pick, choose whichever one. And, you know, I am just so grateful to have met you through the Watson Institute. It's been such a gratifying part of my life. And for my fun fact, I'd say my favorite dessert is gulab jamun, which is this beautiful Indian dessert with rose water and honey. And my gosh, it's so delicious. Okay, I was super excited to know that dessert. Maybe you can <laughs> share it to me on Zoom later. Okay. I will. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get started. On your LinkedIn profile, you consider yourself a creative technologist. Uh, are there any reasons for this term? Absolutely. So as I was thinking about personal branding, as I kind of moved through different industries and the different functions within those industries, I found that my title for each role didn't quite encapsulate all that I was bringing to the role or all that I saw reflected in the skill sets that I was utilizing. So I actually spent months trying to figure out how do I describe myself to someone who is meeting me for the first time and I want them to understand all the things I bring to new situations. So the creative piece is as you mentioned, I'm an arts and culture commissioner, so I do see things from an artistic and design lens, but also I feel like the technology piece was critical because, as you mentioned, also the systems thinking, understanding things from an operations perspective. So I felt like creative technologists best encapsulated both the artistic piece as well as the analytical and um, more hardware, software-focused elements of my thinking processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. So I did do some research on Google. It says it's kind of like a role with technology-focused professional who understand the creative process and is good at prototyping early, facilitating prototype testing, and implementing changes. Jojo, you're the best researcher I know, and exactly right. Um, the product management piece of understanding end-to-end -end life cycle development and management is a really critical lens that I bring to all projects. And so, again, that does really encapsulate why I chose the creative technologist title for my kind of overall encompassing role in life. Yeah, based on your descriptions and also the skill sets mentioned online, it seems like this role kind of like similar to product manager. You know, I can completely understand that comparison. I'd say creative technologist, the key is that product management can and should require a, an artistic or creative lens, but it doesn't. Um, you can actually be a perfectly profound 
product manager without taking on those perspectives. And so I think that's where the creative technologist is really unique and it's where it lands in um, the benefits that it brings to a team and a goal and a mission. Okay, impressive. I would be really interested to know what path did you take to become a creative technologist? But before we jump into that question, we'll go through your career journey first. Yes. So it seems you tried uh, multiple opportunities at Google. You worked as an ads product solutions consultant, event coordinators, and product manager. So which is your sweet spot? And could you tell us about your career journey at Google as well? Oh, Jojo, that's an awful question. It's too hard. You know, um, when you ask what's the sweet spot, I'd say that's one great benefit that I had when I was working at Google was that I was able to move with my sweet spot as my skills and interests matured. So as you mentioned at first, I was a solutions consultant and true Truly, the very first thing I did when I joined Google was they put me at a chair, at a phone, and they said, uh, small businesses will call and ask you to give them ad advertising consulting. And I was like, I am a junior in college, rising senior. How in the world am I going to be trusted to do this work? Um, so that was a really fun start, but it, and it helped me develop that lens of how do you create industry agnostic branding advice? that can help anyone, anywhere, at any stage in their business grow in such a way that connects with their audiences. And I think that has continued to be a helpful um, skill set throughout my career, but that really was the sweet spot at that age, at that stage in my career. And as you mentioned, I then move on to working as an event coordinator while also doing the solutions consultant piece as um, I worked with larger and larger clientele as I um, continued my career. but. The event coordinator was fantastic when I was organizing Google's first and second Boulder Startup Weekends. Oh my gosh, it was so difficult. Oh, so much fun though. You know, bringing together software engineers, uh, people in real estate for uh, Alphabet overall folks in product management, project management, accounting, you know, bringing on a very diverse team to ensure that we had all those perspectives represented as we were developing this hackathon for the first time for the group. And then with the product management, it really was the encapsulation of a lot of those prior skills of how do you dive into someone's problem, really understand the problem first and get a good team together to then be able to deliver an optimal solution while also keeping on an iterative mindset mm -hmm. and um, throughout. So I think that that, it kind of flowed through really well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I just have a question, like how did you manage to do all these roles all together? I, I assume you take like 20% side projects, 80% for your main jobs, or you did just did some internal what we say, a transfer from as product solutions consultant to product manager. Like, tell us about how did you go from one role to the other? Ah, so you're a good interviewer. You're like, no, tell me actually how it happened, not just what happened. So good question, good question. Thank you know, you. I, <laughs> I'd say that the 20% feature of working at Google is complex because it doesn't quite look like 
what a lot of folks think it might look like. I'd say I definitely was pushing some 60, 70 hour work weeks. And that's how I was able to truly accomplish all these different things is I never slept. And this is not advice. Uh, this is anti-advice. Don't do this. But I didn't sleep. I didn't really have a social life. But I was able to build the skill sets that now empower me to do the work I do with Watson Institute as well as a commissioner. So I think that um, how I did it is not recommended. I worked way too hard. <laughs> so that's the truth, though. Okay, got it. Yeah. It seems you are very good at multitasking. I mean, doing all these roles at the same time. Oh, thank you. I mean, when I was well, working as the product manager piece, I actually worked on Google Calendar because it is my favorite Google tool because that's how I multitask. I put in everything on that Google Calendar. Wow, that's so cool. So would you be like secretly tell me which feature did you add on or optimized? I 100% cannot tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, let's move to the next question. So we've talked about the all these roles or all the tasks or uh, interesting events you organized at Google. So what is the most important thing you learned from working at Google? I have to take a moment to really think about that one. I'd say the most important thing I learned at Google was a deeper understanding of a lesson that's been kind of th of a through line in my life overall, which is if you ask, there's a chance you can get it. If you don't ask, there's no chance you can get it. Uh, because as mentioned earlier, as I was doing all those kind of taking on all those different types of opportunities at Google, there was definitely pushback along the way. I mean, I was a solutions consultant, which is more marketing focused, who wanted to do event coordination, who wanted to do product management, who wanted to do X, Y, and Z. And of course, there's going to be folks who are like, you know, this isn't your specialty. Why are you pushing for that? And I think that um, while at Google, I was just able to more deeply understand that if I believe in myself first, then I can get other people to believe in me. But if I don't believe in myself first, there's pretty much no chance anyone else will. And I think a really great example of that is uh, in 2019, I, <laughs> I remember there was an internal email email chain that was like, you know, we need someone to speak on uh, Google Cloud infrastructure in uh, Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi, Vietnam this winter. Mind you, this was like in the summer I received the email and they needed someone in November. And I was like, oh man, I'd love to go speak on Google Cloud infrastructure in Vietnam. Mind you, I had no idea what Google Cloud infrastructure was. I uh, had never been to Vietnam. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that this shouldn't work out. And there's a lot of reasons I should not have pursued it. But as soon as I saw that email, I said, hi, my name is Ebony. I would actually love to take on this opportunity. And God bless this amazing woman. She never asked me if I knew anything about Google Cloud. She was just like, yeah, okay, um, here, go ahead and get the, go ahead, because she noticed I didn't have the certification though. She was like, go ahead and get the certification and we'll book your tickets. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So for the next mm, four weeks, I'd say, I'd get off work at like 5.36 and then from 6 to 11 p.m. I was studying Google Cloud like nobody's business. And I, of course, passed the certification and was able to not only deliver two great keynote, keynote speeches in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam, but I was also able to, and this is a really tough part, answer follow-up questions. That's always the worst part is when people are like, okay, you just told me all these things about Google Cloud, but what about this? And I think that was just such a great example of Google being the kind of place where if you are willing to do the hard work to prepare yourself for the opportunity, the opportunities will come. And I think that doesn't just apply to Google, it can also apply to life. If you, you know, yeah. keep 
your eyes open to different opportunities. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's very awesome. I mean, you just started learning Google Cloud from scratch and answer all the questions presented like I'm the professional who works in Google Cloud industries. <laughs> okay, so you spent a couple of years at Google and then it seems like a huge decision you made. So as we know, Google is millions of people's dream company. What made you decide to leave Google? And at what point did you decide to join Watson Institute? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say it was a hard decision to leave Google. That is not an easy decision. You know, I think back on it and it took a year and a half. I mean, I was there for about three years and about the year and a half mark, I thought, okay, maybe it's time to look at other opportunities. But to be honest with you, the health insurance is amazing. Like I paid nothing for better like prescriptions and the food is great and the people are so fun. And you know, I could spend hours talking about all the great things about it. But at the end of the day, I realized that in that very large organization, it was gonna be hard for me to develop in the ways that were important to me. And I had already felt like, you know, as I mentioned with going to Vietnam and Google Cloud infrastructure without having known about anything prior, those are those kind of like wild opportunities that you don't expect to get in your life. And I had already accomplished it within my first two years there. And as I was looking at the history of my career and what I wanted to be the future, I didn't see Google being the place for me to continue on that kind of growth trajectory that I had in mind for myself. So that was really the decision point for me. And what point did I decide to join Watson Institute? Ah, yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I I helped organize or coordinated uh, Google's first and second Boulder Startup Weekend. And I kid you not, that first year in person, the two we had... I want to say something around 60 participants in the hackathon. We tried to keep it a little tight as that was our pilot year. And the two of the best presenters without a shadow of a doubt were from Watson. Mm -hmm. And we had folks who had 30 years in tech career, you know, uh, high school students with way too much uh, energy. And, you know, we had this really wide variety of folks. So it's kind of hard to stand out in a group like that. But both of the Watson fellows were just phenomenal. And that kind of put a little ring in my ear that, hey, Watson, and something to look into, something to be interested in. And then a few years later, the senior director of programs role opened up and I was looking for a new challenge and it worked out perfectly. I got it. So that's why it kind of like intersection for your life. And then you want to uh, jump into another area. You have a passion. Yeah, and for listeners who don't know Watson Institute very well, just uh, background information, it is a place where next generation entrepreneurial leaders can find their community, discover their calling, and accelerate their careers. Okay, so then you joined Watson Institute. Is there anything you found to be different from what you thought originally before you joined? I mean, if yes, how, what did you do to cope with it? And if not, tell us about something that meets your most expectations at Watson Institute? Yes, great question. Is there anything I thought would be different? <laughs> There's a lot of things I thought would be different. I think top is that I I had a good understanding of what it meant to work for an accelerator program, but now I have a profound understanding. I think I thought that, uh, you know, every cohort 
of entrepreneurial fellows would look and feel pretty much exactly the same because I, I did find some strong similarities in my prior work working with different organizations and different teams um, as a consultant and a speaker. I found, you know, some some strong strings between those different experiences. At Watson, there are completely different experiences every time. Like, for example, Jojo, you're in the cohort right now. Your cohort is completely different than the last cohort, and it'll almost guarantee be completely different than the next one. And I think that does bring an excitement to the role, but it also brings unique challenges of kind of feeling like you have to rewrite the playbook a little bit every time. And I'd say the way that I've coped with it is I have been so grateful to have built a strong network prior to joining Watson, both at Google and through organizations like MLT, Management Leadership for Tomorrow, and Lime Connect. Uh, those are two other large international fellowship groups. And through those communities, I found other folks who work in accelerators, who work in venture capital, who work in private equity. And we have similar challenges, and I've been able to collaborate and communicate with them about what the best practices are. And I feel like I've had a really great support system for diving into these new challenges. Okay, that's very good to hear this. Uh, so joining Watson kind of like expand your horizon to the next level, much bigger than the circle you would have at Google. I wouldn't quite frame it like that. <laughs> I think uh, Google is a much larger company. So there's definitely going to be more people there. But it definitely expanded my horizons into the... Uh, advanced capital industries and understanding how fellowships are funded, how entrepreneurs are assessed. I had my own, I have coached and um, done pitch coaching for CU Boulder Venture Partners for a couple years now. And the way I used to assess at entrepreneurs has completely changed after working with our search and recruitment teams here at Watson. So it's just really um, given me a fresh perspective on how to look at metrics of success for entrepreneurs. Okay, that's great. So based on what you just mentioned, I think you just apply all these experience into your own startup. So tell us about your own startup. I mean, you spent four years working at Abney Freeman Institute. Is that your own startup? And could you tell us about it? And how did it start? Oh, that was such a smooth transition. I love that. Yes. So it is a startup. And it was my interdisciplinary creative studio. And it was kind of the umbrella organization for a lot of my different activities. So this is where, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, you may want to like slow it down because it's going to get really confusing for like 20 seconds. And then we're going to get back, back to normal. So the Ebony Freeman Institute involves, um, I'm an author. So two books that I've written, I'm a podcaster. So my podcast I'm also a workshop facilitator for large tech companies, so it involves that. I'm also a keynote speaker for large companies, it involves that. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. Honestly, at this point, I do a lot of different things and every three minutes to do. The, the kind of the common theme is that it's interdisciplinary in the sense that sometimes I've been, I come from a purely disability inclusion and accessibility focus. So I work with companies on their uh, ERG, so employee resource groups, as well as building stronger systems for supporting their employees with disabilities. And then other times I've come from the perspective of young women's entrepreneurship, because this is my second startup. So I discuss, you know, what are the unique challenges and unique advantages of being a young female entrepreneur and trying to change the narrative of it always being, oh, everything is so tough for us. Yes, it is tough for us, but we have unique skill sets and um, 
really interesting ways of handling problems that I don't think are seen in other entrepreneurial sets. So I, I like telling the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So it seems you work part time on your startup. So for six months, I was full time on the Ebony Freeman Institute, and then the opportunity with Watson came about, and I I really was a hard decision. It was not easy for me to say, you know, do I continue with my own venture, which at times felt, you know, very, very exciting, but other times it felt very scary because I, whenever anyone asked, what do you do? I'd be like, well, do you mean this week or do you mean next week? And that's kind of a scary thing. Um, or do I move forward to this kind of re- more refined role, but it's also at a startup. And ultimately I did find that working with Watson was a good next step on, as mentioned earlier, that longer trajectory of my career and the skills yeah. I want to build. Mm-hmm. It seems like it takes you one step further from what you uh, were doing at your own startup. Okay, so what has been the most surprising part of starting a startup? It's likely mentioned you have two startups. So any difference between these two and any parts you feel really surprising? Yes. So my first startup was called Ability Enabled, and we aim to create inclusive working environments for people with disabilities. And that started when I was an intern at a large tech company, and it took three people, more than three weeks and 30 emails to get from disability accommodation requested to disability accommodation uh, receive. And in a 12-week internship, you can kind of understand why that's terrible. <laughs> you know, you don't have your disability accommodation and you need it to do the best work possible. And I just wondered, you know, as an intern, if I'm facing that, how is that facing full-time, how is that challenging full-time employees? So that was my first stop ability enabled. And I had a team of uh, five and that was just such a phenomenal experience. And the Ebony Freeman Institute was a solo affair. And as mentioned earlier, it's an interdisciplinary creative studio, more so focused on bringing professionalism and whimsy, that kind of beautiful combination to large organizations. And I'd say the most surprising thing is for Ability Enabled, was the importance of hiring? I, I'd say the toughest, the toughest and most surprising thing was I had, I loved everyone on my team. I truly loved every single one of them. I, if they ever get married, I want to be a bridesmaid. I, like I'm, I'm bringing all the flowers. Uh, but one of my teammates actually, you know, her, her work productivity was just decreasing months over month. And at the about three month mark, you know, I put her on a PIF, a, a professional improvement plan, and things just were not turning around. So eventually I did have to fire her. And she actually said thank you to me when I fired her because she had wow. been, she was thinking that she didn't really feel as connected to the startup anymore, but she didn't know how to leave. And that was a really profound moment for me when I realized sometimes giving people an out is a gift and firing can actually be a new opportunity for both, both sets of people. So I, that was a really surprising moment because I thought no one ever is going to say thank you for saying uh, for getting fired. But no, it did happen. And with Ebony Freeman Institute, the most surprising thing, I say the most surprising thing was how much I enjoyed working with different types of folks at Google. You know, I did work primarily with folks who had some understanding of a tech background. But with the Ebony Freeman Institute, like I mentioned earlier, I did primarily work with large tech companies, but I also work with small UX designers and, you know, architects and just all kinds of different folks. And I think that's where that interdisciplinary piece comes in. I didn't realize how much I would love working with people who had 
vastly different experiences who could argue till midnight about some really infinitesimal detail but you know it really mattered to them they're really passionate about it and it just even talking about it now it kind of brings me that that joy and excitement of folks who are really excited about their perspective and ensuring that the best outcome arises Mm-hmm. It seems that all these two lessons you learned from your two startups are quite different. I was super delighted to know all these because I only started my startup six months ago. So I'm really glad to hear all about this. And I, just as you mentioned in the first lesson you got from your first startup, you learned about how to manage people. And then you kind of like provide some advice on careers for people to further develop their personal goals in the long terms. And then I happened to read your new articles on LinkedIn about what I do as a program manager. And you did give advice to people who are looking for a new role. And you mentioned that the number one important rule is to find someone who is doing what you wanted to do. But actually, in my own case, or in a real life situation, I feel that would be really difficult to find. So what are your tips on this? How did you code reach to people who are doing kind of similar roles you want to do in the future? Absolutely. It is. I hope I stand by the advice and I admit that it's challenging. Especially if, as you know, I've seen in your career, you're also very interdisciplinary. You have a lot of different interests, um, different passions, different life experiences. It can be difficult to find someone who matches not only well enough to your past that you can have a substantive conversation, but also well enough to your goal future so that they can give good advice that's actually really relevant. And I, I did find challenges along the way because I'd find people who we had similar backgrounds. And we'd have such an easygoing conversation. But when I asked them for mentorship and guidance, you know, the advice they were giving me wasn't relevant. It it didn't quite make sense for where I wanted to see my career. And there are other folks who were literally doing the job that I wanted to do next. And it was like talking to a brick wall. Like we had no foundation for a good conversation. And neither of us wanted to go through the pain of, of continuing. Um, so I'd say that the secret, I can't stand when people give me this as the secret, but just keep trying. I, I'd say it has taken years for me to find what's oftentimes your personal board of directors. So the folks that you go to for the different major category challenges of being professional and being of your professional and personal life. And I, I'd say that it's okay if it fluctuates. It's okay if there are times that, uh, you know, they were really good for one question and you thought they'd be great for 80 more. But in reality, they were not able to provide that support for you moving forward. And I think being accepting of the impermanence of those relationships and the idea that, you know, you can come in with the distinct goal of getting advice in one area, but being open to the idea that actually maybe they're good at giving advice in this other area, or maybe they're not good at giving you advice particularly, but you enjoy having coffee with them. And just you know, keeping that goal in mind, but also being open to different benefits arising. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with you because I'm a really results-driven person. So oftentimes when I was doing something, I always have a very specific goal in my mind. And if I didn't fulfill that goal or my vision, I will kind of feel unsatisfied or feel really upset. But hearing from your experience, I feel much better. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good tips. And then speaking of all these advice, I assume you have a lot of mentors in the past career journeys. And so what was the most useful piece of advice you've heard from one of your advisors? 
Ooh, it's a combo piece of advice, which I'd say the best piece of advice usually are for me. It's not necessarily one person having one excellent thing to say one time, but it's uh, just kind of the combination of a lot of folks, different intersecting ideas. But the best piece of advice I've ever received <laughs> is people process product. And I'll explain it a little further. Before I joined Google, and honestly, those first few months as well, my orientation was definitely product process people. So I thought about exactly what you were saying, results driven. I thought about what are the outcomes first. And then I thought about how do we get to those outcomes? And then finally, I thought about who's involved with creating those outcomes. And the best advice I've received is to kind of flip that and actually think about who's involved on the team. Who are you working with? Whose voice is not being heard? Whose voice is being overheard? So people first. Then process. How are you going to sustainably do it? Like the Kaizen optimization, how are you going to continue to get better and better over time and keep an open mind to different uh, techniques available? And then finally, product. What's the outcome and who's impacted and by what measure? That's profoundly changed my entire life is because I, I use it in my personal life too is this idea of keeping people in mind first and product last, because if you've got the right people on board and you're developing the right processes, you will get the right product at the end. But if you're only thinking about the product in advance, you may bring on the right people. You might have the right processes, but they will fall off. They will leave your team or, you know, your processes will break down and, and they won't be, um, what's that great word? Anti-fragile. So if something, if even a small thing comes, your process breaks down, you know, I, I've seen it happen in my own career and my own personal life of just not taking people and process seriously enough. And I have really seen a transformation in how I move through the world since I've taken on that new piece of advice. Yes. So now it seems like that's also the core points of the theory that I'm thinking, right? People first. And everything's always circling around the people. Exactly. Yeah. That's super good to hear from you. Then, as we know, we've already reached the first day of August. So that means we're almost halfway, more than halfway through the whole 2022. So what's your personal goal for the rest of 2022? I would be eager to know about that. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, you know, the one lingering arm of Ebony Freeman Institute is I am still a magazine journalist. So I write um, artistic essays and preview articles for um, arts and culture magazines across the world. And to date, I've been able to get some really cool assignments to go to really amazing events that I never would have paid for myself because they were way too expensive. And so my goal for 2022 is honestly uh, to get accepted, a pitch accepted to cover the Venice Biennale or Art Basel. Either of those are two mega events that I've always wanted to go to. And so that's my personal goal is to get an article pitch accepted for one of those events. Okay, so good uh, luck with your goals. Um, <laughs> will you usually just take all your goals down in a book or you just keep it in mind? I used to put them down in a book, but then I found it to be too rigid. And I'm a, I've become a big believer that if the environment and the circumstances change, sometimes you do need to let your goal change as well. And so I've, I keep it in my mind. I try to always write it in pencil in my mind. So I'm willing, ready, and able to erase pieces that are no longer relevant or make sense for the environment I'm in. Okay, so may I ask like, how many goals would you set for yourself in a time? 
yeah so my top goal for 2022 is the article pitches you know i probably have 75 goals for the rest of this week and 35 for today so i have i have a ton of goals but also uh jojo i feel like there's a really exciting goal that you maybe have do we maybe want to bring that up uh, yeah for sure it's actually to invite cheryl sandberg to my podcast that's like my biggest goal in 2022. Okay. <laughs> I so didn't keep is- that in mind. Yeah. But I just kind of feel it's not really achievable, but worth giving a try. It is 100% achievable. And uh, this is our flip. Now I'm the podcaster. Um, And if you're listening and you have any connection to Cheryl Sandberg, even if you know her dogs, babysitters, aunt, cousin, please reach out to Jojo. Her email is <laughs> okay it's jojo lee uh, 7878 at gmail.com okay perfect so if you're a cheryl sandberg associate please reach out to jojo asap so we can get this 2022 goal on the road oh my god thank you so much yeah just give a very friendly shout out to all these listeners uh who might know cheryl sandberg so. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so i'm super happy to know your personal development goals because oftentimes people set goals for themselves but sharing the goals that they set is also inspiring and brave and in other words we get into the habit of the what ifs so what if this goes wrong what if that goes wrong but i mean sharing it to your fellows will be a good way to kind of reduce these anxieties and stress okay so i think we are kind of running out of time in this episode we learned that it's okay to be cautious and careful in the decisions we make occasionally but you can't let the fear of things going wrong stop you from trying something new and no matter what you do in life there's always going to be a risk of something bad happening learning and becoming is a lifelong journey and we also learned about ebony's journeys at a tech company her own startup and a nonprofit startup that serves young global social entrepreneurs yes so again ebony thank you for being here on the podcast we are excited to have you and for listeners thanks for listening to tmp podcast and indulging some feel good insights for the mind see you next time